0: Well, hello everyone, thank you so much for joining us. No matter how you found us, we are so glad that you are here. Here at Menlo Church, we believe that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. So let's go ahead and jump into today's message. Hey, brother, I know you're going through it. You know what it says in the good book? This too shall pass. It says in the Bible, cleanliness is next to godliness. So clean up your life. Let me, let me find that for you. Okay. When God closes a door, He throws open a window. It's, it's in there somewhere. God works in mysterious ways. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone that isn't. Just take my word for it. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. You know, God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. Well, I want to say hi to everybody Uh, in this room, folks uh, at all of our campuses, people joining us online. People's awareness of or memory about what the Bible actually says is not generally headed in the right direction in our day. If you ask the average person, What was the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve ate? what do you think the most common answer would be? Most people say apple. Actually, the Bible doesn't say, it just says fruit. Or ask people how many wise men there were, the top answer would be three. Again, the Bible doesn't say. It does talk about three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know how many wise men there were. My mom, who used to wash the shoelaces of our little saddle shoes every day, who scoured the guest bathroom of our home every day, even though we didn't have a guest, used to love the saying, cleanliness is next to godliness. But it's not in the Bible. Gallup had a poll where a whole bunch of people thought that the epistles were the wives of the apostles. Some people thought Jesus' most famous talk was called the Sermon on the Mount because it was delivered on horseback. And and some people thought that Noah was married to Joan of Arc. Not in the Bible. So we're doing a series called I Didn't Say That about ideas or saying or thoughts that get attributed to God but are not actually in the Bible that God didn't actually say. And the reason that we're doing that is that often it's our wrong ideas about God and his will and his character and the way that he works that create stumbling blocks for our ability to trust him and love him. A lot of people think that the Bible says God will never give you more than you can handle, and so they think being a Christian means that your life will always be manageable. But the Bible never says that, and life will often give people things they can't handle at all. A lot of people think the Bible says money is the root of all evil, and so they think the Bible is anti-money, or they think that if you have financial gifts or the ability to generate wealth, you're not really a deeply spiritual person, but that's not what the Bible says about money. So uh, through this series, we're going to get the chance to know God better in fresh ways so that our faith in him can get stronger and our love for him can grow deeper, And we'll begin to obey him more naturally and more joyfully. And the statement that we're looking at this weekend to kick it off is maybe the the erroneous quote most often attributed to God, and the thought is this one, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. When Auntie and I were newlyweds and I was in seminary and we had no money at all, her Aunt Nita visited us and got in a big argument with me about this saying. And I said to Aunt Nita, trust me, I'm a professional. It's not in the Bible. But she knew it was in the Bible. She actually made a sizable bet with me. And she stayed up until one o'clock in the morning looking for a verse that is not there. And the next morning, she tried to get out of paying it off by saying that the Bible says you can't gamble. But I told her that verse isn't in the Bible either, so we went double or nothing, and I got even more money from her. This saying, God helps those that help themselves, actually goes back to one of Aesop's fables. In this fable, a man's driving a wagon and he gets stuck in the mud, and he gets out and kneels down and prays to the gods to unstuck it. And Hercules appears to him and tells him to get off his knees and put his shoulder to the wheel. And Aesop says, the moral is, the gods help those who help themselves. So that saying goes way back, not in the Bible. Now, it's certainly true God does not call us to be passive. God has given to each of us a mind and a body and a will, and he wants us to take initiative and to take responsibility. That's a good thing. Faith in God does not mean I get a free pass from having to study for tests or having to exercise in order to be healthy or showing up for work on time and with a good attitude. God will generally not do for you what he enables you to do yourself. God will generally not do for you what he enables you to do. But, but, our biggest problems in life are in precisely those areas where we cannot help ourselves. And then we find this, we have this strange resistance to asking for help. Asking for help offends my pride asking for help makes me feel small or incompetent and the great danger we've all been there is that if we don't get help what started out as a problem will turn into a crisis what started out as going over budget ends up in debt and shame what started out as a pattern of unresolved conflict ends up in divorce what started out as a bad habit becomes an addiction a problem with flirtation turns into an affair A problem with procrastination turns into unemployment. A problem with sarcasm turns into a life where people don't want to be my friend. Here's the truth about me. I need help. It's the deep truth. And I'll tell you a little secret about you. You need help. You can say that to somebody on your way out of church today. You need help. Amazingly enough, from a human perspective, the whole story of the people of God, their great adventure together, begins with the single word help. We're told this about the Israelites when they were oppressed in slavery in Egypt. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So God looked on the Israelites. And was concerned about them. And God did not say, hey, get organized. Hey, show some initiative. Hey, show some initiative. Hey, uh, put your shoulder to the wheel. I'll help people that help themselves. God just helped. Who does God help? Well, God helps people that ask for help. God helps people who are needy. God helps people who are weak. God helps people who are scared. God helps people who are in way over their heads. God helps people who can't help themselves. Now, to be clear, God helps other people too. God loves to help so much that sometimes he shows up and gives help for no reason at all. Jesus said one of the signature characteristics of his father is that he makes the sun to shine on both good people and bad people. He sends the rain to fall for both the just and the unjust. One of the favorite words in the Bible to describe God is help. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Mostly, mostly, being the kind of person that God will help means being a person who is willing to pray who is actually devoted to prayer. God helps those who pray because those who pray are asking for help and looking for help and hoping for help. So what we're really called to in the Bible on this issue, rather than self-help, God helps those that help themselves, what we're really called to is prayer, a life of prayer, a heart of prayer, an attitude of prayer. Now, I don't know where you are on the prayer deal. Maybe you have been disappointed by prayer. You cried out to God for something that really mattered to you, and nothing happened. Or maybe you feel guilty about prayer. A lot of people put prayer in this category as one of those things, I know I ought to do more of, but I don't do enough of it, and and I don't seem to find the time, and I just feel guilty, and then I kind of avoid it, and it gets worse. Or maybe you feel confused about prayer you hear other people tell stories about amazing answers to prayer or feeling deep intimacy with God. But when you pray, your mind starts to wander and pretty soon you're thinking about grocery shopping or an old television show. Maybe if you're really honest about it, it's a good place to be honest, you don't believe in prayer. Maybe the idea of talking to an invisible supernatural being doesn't make sense to you. Or you think that, Prayer doesn't really change anything. God already knows what he's going to do. Or maybe prayer is the great joy of your heart. Maybe you have known secret moments of peace in times of trouble, of courage in situations that would normally produce great fear, of strength and control in situations where normally you would make terrible choices and... and And you can't even put into words your gratitude for those moments of prayer. Wherever you are on the prayer deal, there's a story in the Old Testament of one of the first times God taught his people about the power of prayer. And so I want to look at that in this message. God uh, had delivered Israel from the Egyptians after they first cried out for help. They were in the desert. They were on their way to the promised land. And then we're told, quite out of the blue, they're attacked by a group of people called the Amalekites and their whole existence, their calling, not just as a nation, but as a people who were blessed in order to be a blessing to the whole world. They had a mission. All of that is in threat and they don't know why. And Moses calls his number two man, Joshua, in for a strategy session. Now we're told that Moses was the one man in all of Israel who had been raised in the Pharaoh's courts, and this means that he would have had military training. He would have been schooled in military strategy. So Joshua would wait for some great battle plan, but we're not told of anything like that. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men, go out, fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, we are not told what Joshua thought of this plan. If I was Joshua and I went to a strategy session like that, I think I would have expected a little more strategy. I might have expected that our leader, Moses, would be right down there with us in the middle of the fight. But he's got another plan. And the morning dawns. And Moses climbs up this hill. He goes there with his brother, and another man named Hur. Hur was the son of a leader called Caleb. Uh, it is thought that the name Hur means liberty, which would be very relevant to the story of liberated slaves. But uh, when I first read it, his name sounds to me like something out of an Abbot and Costello who's on first routine. Aaron, get Hur to come with. Oh, you want her? I thought you wanted him. I do want Him. Who is Him? I just told you her. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Moses needs Aaron and Hur for an important reason. Moses goes up on the hill. He raises his arms toward heaven, toward God. And it's quite amazing, the text doesn't tell us a single word that he prayed. In fact, the text does not even have the word prayer in it. Remember, there were no books about prayer written back in those days. The first books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and so on, were not even written yet. Maybe Moses, like a lot of people, felt reluctant to pray in public, out loud. Earlier, Moses had said that he was slow of speech and slow of tongue. So maybe no uh, uh, audible words came out of him. Maybe Moses felt awkward or silly or useless with all those men fighting. But, you know, prayer is not about coming up with impressive-sounding words. It's about the heart. It's primarily about the one we pray to. What we pray matters much less than who we pray to. And so this is a single act of the will expressed by his body, help. And the most amazing thing happened. Help came. Power came. Power from God power for the battle on earth. It was like an electric current flowed in him and through him and beyond him. And the men fight like men inspired. They can't be stopped. They can't be defeated. Bunch of ex-slaves. It's amazing. But then Moses grows weary and his arms are tired and he can't keep holding them up. But when they come down, something happens to the spirit of the soldiers on the field, and they begin to lose the battle. And so Moses raises his hands back up, and the tide turns yet again. Israel begins to prevail again, and it dawns on Moses and maybe on Aaron and her and Joshua. Joshua. When Moses reaches up to the heavens in prayer, power is released, and the battle is no longer merely a matter of flesh and blood. There is another power. There is another force. There is another kingdom at work. There is an unseen reality in the battle. God is giving his people see a physical picture of a much deeper spiritual reality. We are not made to live on our own power. You and I are not made to live that way. We are made to live in dependence on God. And over time, this discovery gets deepened and elaborated over and over in the Bible, supremely through Jesus. And then it spreads to people. And it still goes on. An alcoholic named Bill W. lives in stubborn pride year after year after year. And his battle is with a bottle, and the enemy is killing him. And finally, he hits bottom. He realizes he is hopeless. And he lifts his arms towards heaven and prays that single word, help. And the battle for sobriety that he could never win begins to turn. As long as he and millions of others live one day at a time with hands lifted up, help me, God, help me, God, I can't do this. My life is unmanageable. I got an enemy that I'll never beat. God, help me, help me, help me. And, and through that surrender comes victory. So, gang, this is the invitation for you today. In your work, in your home, in your relationship, in your addiction, or in your confusion, or with your diagnosis, or in your loss. Or in your fear, there's a battle going on. Everybody that you see is facing a battle, and you are. We're not meant to do battle alone. Now, what will keep me from asking for help generally is pride and self-sufficiency. When Nancy and I first got married, one of us was way more emotionally immature and relationally challenged than they knew. And worse, this person was too proud and stubborn to admit they needed help. And worse, this person was me. Ironically, I was getting a Ph.D. in clinical psychology because I believe people need help, all people need help, but not me. And the first step toward healing was uh, very, very humbling for me. It was just to admit, I need help. I do not have this intimacy thing, this marriage thing, this love thing, this life. I don't have it figured out. I don't know what to do. I can't help myself. I withhold, I withdraw, I can't help myself. And I went to a human counselor and I went to a divine counselor. And by the way, very often God chooses human means to give us divine help. I had to learn to lift up my hands and ask for help. And I'm still learning this. There are, I think, two great truths, and if I can get them embedded in my mind, they'll help me more and more just habitually raise my hands in prayer. I kind of associate them with two arms going up. The first great truth is this, God is able. Our God is able. How able is God? Well, according to the Bible, he is exceedingly able. He is able to speak the universe into being, to say, Let there be light, and there is light. He is able to bring the plagues that will change the heart of a Pharaoh. When the Red Sea needed to be parted for Israel to walk through, God was able to part it. When manna was needed to feed the people, God was able to bring it. When a storm threatened the life of his disciples, God is able to still it. God is able to rescue Daniel from a lion's den, able to deliver three young men from a fiery furnace, able to take five loaves and two fish and feed a crowd of thousands of people, able to make a priest silent, able to make a donkey speak, able to make the lame to walk and the blind to see, able to make a leper or clean, able to make a dead man live. If we're going to use the word God at all, we have to understand this is not poetic language. There is simply no other way to conceive of such a being that we call God. Paul says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And it's like he's loading this up with one thought after another. God is able to do what we ask. Not just that. Able to do all that we ask. Not just that. Able to to do more than all that we ask not just that able to do more than all we ask or imagine not just that able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine how able is god he is very able he is exceedingly able and his arm has not lost any of its strength he has not lost his capacity to speak and have it be so. God is able. And I have to have trust in that at least enough to turn to him. And then the second great truth, God is able, God is willing. See, now God could be a very strong being, but if God does not have a caring heart and a listening ear, I don't want to hold my hands out to heaven all day. But God is willing. He's not just able, He's willing to hear, willing to notice, willing to love, willing to act. How willing? Very willing. Willing enough, the writers of Scripture say, to count the hairs on your head and keep every one of your tears in a bottle. Willing to hear the groan of His people and the blood that cries out from the ground of every single victim. Willing to suffer. Like a lovesick father waiting for his prodigal child to come home. Willing enough to become like one of us. This is the doctrine of incarnation. That in Jesus, God became flesh. And part of what that means is God learned firsthand what it is like to need help. God learned that. When Jesus was a little boy he would say this word to Mary, help, help me, mommy. It's one of the first words a child learns, help me get dressed, help me eat my food. How amazing that God humbled himself in Jesus, the maker of the universe, asking for help to tie the laces of his sandals. If a parent lives long enough, things change, and they end up asking their children for help. Help me get dressed. Help me eat my food. See, we are born needing help, and we die needing help. And in between, we can fool ourselves into thinking we don't need help, but all it takes is a little age, a little health problem, a little blood vessel that doesn't work just right, a little email from work saying that that job is no longer ours. And we remember that word, help, In the end, Jesus, God in the flesh, could not even carry his cross by himself. And a man named Simon from Cyrene had to carry it for him. And the story of Jesus ends as it begins with a God who somehow knows what it is to be weak and small and unable and needing help. That's our God. He is so willing. He has such a generous heart. God is not frustrated or impatient. God is not weak or disinterested. God is waiting right now. So where do you most need help from God? God, give me strength to face this crisis. God, give me wisdom to know how to parent. God, give me peace in the midst of a storm. God, give me the ability to overcome my anger and resentment and bitterness. God, take away my fear. It's killing me and I can't make it go away. God, give me your help to be able to cope at work. God, I need your patience to be able to dwell in the midst of this problem. God, I haven't lived in joy for a long, long time. God is able and God is willing. And God helps people who can't help themselves. Now, maybe like Moses, you need help from somebody else. Maybe your arms are getting pretty tired. There have been times in my life when I have felt so deeply burdened that I've had to say to a friend, I don't even know how to pray right now. I feel like my heart is so downcast. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Would you pray for me? Would you stand in that gap for me? And they said, yeah, I will do that. And then they are like Aaron for me. They are like her for me. Those are sacred moments. And we get to do that for each other. It's an amazing picture that this story shows us of life in the kingdom of God where God hears and God cares. God is able and God is willing. And he sends his power. And there's the battle that looks like it's being carried on in human flesh, but the real battle is not down on the field. The real battle is up on the mountain with a man named Moses. But then Moses gets too tired. Moses gets too weary. And so he has a couple of friends that come alongside of him. And they hold up the hands that don't have the strength to hold Hold up themselves. And somehow, in the midst of that weakness and brokenness and neediness, power of God gets unleashed that never would through human self-sufficiency and strength and ego alone. And that's us. That's the reality in which we live. That is life in the kingdom of God. Maybe you need to ask somebody, would you be my Aaron? Would you be my her? Would you hold up my hands? Because they're kind of tired right now. Would you support me in prayer? Because my heart's kind of breaking right now. I'm asking all of us, every campus, every man, every woman, put away any self-sufficiency, any stubbornness, any resistance, any pride. Lift those hands towards heaven because God is able God is willing, and we're going to close our time this weekend by praying this simple prayer of help to God, and I'm going to ask that you bow your head and close your eyes, and that every campus, every one of us is going to ask our God for the help that only God can give, because God helps those who cannot help themselves. Well I hope that that message was inspiring and challenging and it will cause you to look at Jesus a little bit differently. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to stay tuned with us then please follow us on social media and have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.